2: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books and German Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with Ned Richardson-Little about his new book, The Human Rights Dictatorship, Socialism, Global Solidarity, and Revolution in East Germany, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Welcome, Ned.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me on.
2: So just a little background on Dr. Richardson-Little. He received his Ph.D. in 2013 in German and European History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Between 2014 and 2018, he was an Associate Research Fellow on the project 1989 After 1989, Rethinking the Fall of State Socialism in Global Perspective. He is currently a Freigeist Fellow at the University of Erfurt. So, Ned, could you tell us how you became interested in this topic?
1: Uh, it really began, it was back in the mid-2000s, and I had been working at a human rights NGO, this is after the invasion of Iraq, and there was a lot of uh, discussion about the nature of human rights and how occupations can create them, and sort of in the general media discussion, very casual uh, assumption that the occupation of Germany and Japan had been a method where sort of, uh, Complete regime change could happen. Human rights could be implemented. Democracy could flourish. And I got interested in looking at sort of what does it look like trying to create these systems on the ground after a dictatorship? And then also the question of what does it look like on the other side of the wall? That the discussion about Germany was always very much focused on West Germany. East Germany is left out of the problem. And so when I actually got starting to work on a project, um, I was interested in a sort of this competing politics of human rights between East and West. And I also, at that point, found out that Laura Wildenthal was working on West Germany and started sort of focusing on East Germany, uh, since her wonderful book on the language of human rights was about to be coming out. And as a grad student, I was looking through the library, just sort of typing in some keywords, looking at East Germany human rights, trying to see the literature that was out there. And I hit on this strange pair of pamphlets from 1967 and 68. And it was this group called the Committee for the Protection of Human Rights. It seemed to be based in East Berlin. And the strangest part about it was that it was something produced by a government agency. It wasn't actually a dissident group. And up till then, everything I had been reading had always framed the question of human rights politics in East Germany as something that begins with the Helsinki Accords in 1975. You have this big international agreement between East and West. The East German government signs a treaty agreeing to human rights. And then this kicks off a counter-response from dissidents, from activists, and this leads up to the Berlin Wall falling in 1989. It was a nice sort of streamlined narrative starting in 75, ending in 89. And here, suddenly these pamphlets from the government talking about how wonderful human rights are in East Germany years before this was supposed to even be a topic. And that's how I started down this path. sort we trying to look at what is going on? Why are these people talking about this at this time? Why is there a state-sponsored East German Human Rights Organization? Uh, sort of what is this document that really shouldn't exist, according to the narrative, doing in this library in the basement in North Carolina.
2: So basically, you stumbled on this document and it took your study in in a new direction that you had not foreseen. So right, something that never happens to um, us historians. Um, But thankfully, you did find that document because now we have this rich study of human rights in the context of the GDR that examines it from multiple perspectives and doesn't just rely on kind of this conventional uh, analysis that we're so familiar with that is predicated on the role of civil society and dissidents.
1: I mean, I was interested in this question of sort of nature of post-war Germany and looking at transformations to democracy. And at the same time, um, looking at the sort of comparative East and West, these comparative processes and the different paths they could take. And this seemed to really interrupt a lot of the common narratives. And I think a lot of, when it comes to human rights history in particular, in the Cold War, there's really this narrative of uh, sort of an evangelism of human rights that Western diplomats, Western activists, had brought the word of human rights to the East. And then people there, having heard about this, suddenly recognized the self-evident hypocrisy and tyranny of the system and then rose up. And I think that there is a real problem with this in that this idea that sort of you just have to explain the concept of human rights and people will naturally sort of enact some kind of revolution for it. And the more I started looking at this topic, it felt like this narrative didn't hold together, that it turned out human rights was something that The East German government had been talking about going back to uh, the founding of the state and the Socialist Unity Party, the party that ran East Germany, had been talking about back to 1946. There wasn't an absence of discussion about human rights in East Germany. It was something that people had heard about. It was something that was regularly in state media, and it didn't just sort of naturally, spontaneously cause a revolution from below. So it's really this question of, if human rights are this huge driving force of revolution in 1989, helping to bring down the Berlin Wall, why didn't it happen sooner? How do you actually have a process where human rights goes from this abstract concept into some kind of mass movement that can affect real change for democracy?
2: Yeah. And I mean, of course, and when I was in graduate school, that was the narrative that civil society all of a sudden, emerges out of nowhere, right? And of course, it fits very well with the Cold War narrative, and then um, you know, embracing liberal democracy in the region. And so, I think your intervention with respect to human rights and how it was defined and transformed by the Eastern State, and then of course by the people, and how it was also used by them, uh, is really, really significant for challenging this narrative. Okay, so I'd like to move on to a detailed discussion of the chapters and uh, start with the introduction. And here you make reference to Konrad Yarosh's notion of welfare dictatorship, and you discuss how his conceptualization of rights informs and frames your own work. So could you tell us how uh, you conceptualize rights and what you mean particularly by human rights dictatorship?
1: Yeah, I think the idea with the uh, title, not just to be provocative, but also to try and look at how, I think the idea here is to look at how human rights can be instrumentalized by dictatorships and by dictatorial regimes. That human rights are not something that naturally gravitates towards liberal democratic movements. And that when we look at a longer trajectory of history, that we do see uh, states, movements, other political tendencies embracing the idea of human rights without this being some kind of expression of a latent liberal democratic tendency. And so in this case, I want to sort of really try to argue that in the East German cases of pushing it to an extreme, where you have a effectively a one-party dictatorship claiming that they are ruling in the name of human rights and doing so in sort of trying to create. Their own legitimacy through this language of human rights, which we associate much more with those who are challenging state socialist regimes and challenging one party rule. Um, And I think trying to link that out that how human rights were then integrated together with the SED's vision of socialism, how this linked to their larger idea of East Germany's role in global solidarity, and how human rights not only played a role in the legitimization of a state socialist revolution. Uh, implemented by the SED after World War II, but then also the liberal democratic peaceful revolution of 1989-1990 that ultimately led to reunification.
2: Yeah. And what I also think is striking is Jarosz talks a lot about economic and social rights. And so obviously the states, a number of the East European states uh, during the Cold War claimed that these were the types of rights they were able to deliver to their subjects, their citizens, which liberal democracies didn't universally deliver. And so in a way, you could see these systems, in some cases, embracing uh, different types of human rights that you don't see, right? If you're going to argue that economic and social rights are, are fundamentally human rights.
1: And I think what's interesting in the case of the state socialist claim to human rights, that they didn't just say, we are offering you human rights, in ex- or economic and social rights in exchange for you giving up your political rights. But they were trying to claim that the state socialist dictatorship that was created, this dictatorship of the proletariat, that this fundamentally realized also political and civil rights. They always claimed that they had created a system that had gone far beyond bourgeois liberal ideas in which uh, democracy is a matter of voting, for which factions of the capitalist class get to run the country, and that now people got to live in a true democracy in which They had democracy not only in politics, in that they were finally represented by people who were part of the working class, but that also in their everyday life, in uh, factory work, in all kinds of workplaces, they also got to take part in democratic forms of rule. And this is also something that's really important in terms of the way society is structured, that East Germany has a number of these different political parties, which all vote along with the SED. There's a liberal party, there's a Christian democratic party. You have all these mass organizations, you have these trade unions. Society is structured in all of these big mass mobilizing organizations in the name of democracy. But in the end, power is still held from the top. And these groups are all working towards uh, sort of integrating people into this vision of a single party which is ruling in the name of the people. And so, right. this idea of the welfare dictatorship, that in this case, this idea that you have a dictatorship which is working in the name of the greater welfare of people, delivering them rights to all of these basic needs, and that this is intrinsically connected to the political regime on which it stands.
2: Right. Yeah. State socialism. Okay. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sources you use in your analysis of human rights.
1: So I ended up going to about 20 different archives, mostly in Germany. Um, And this was uh, a lot of sourcing coming from the SED's archives, the organization, the mass organization archives, and that included um, the GDR Committee for Human Rights, which I mentioned already. There's also the foreign office to look at East German diplomacy, um, the Stasi archives, though I ended up using those actually uh, somewhat sparingly. Um, the West German government uh, archives in Koblenz, as well as a number of different regional archives across the former East Germany. So places like Leipzig, Dresden, looking at how things were happening on the ground in uh, local offices, um, then also looking at church archives, both in Berlin and elsewhere, and then an uh, archive of various dissident groups. There's one in Berlin through the Robert Huffmann Gesellschaft, and then also the Archiv Bürgerbewegung in Leipzig. And then also a trip out to the Hoover Institution in California, where they have a really large collection of oral history interviews um, with people who had been involved in the dissident movement. So a lot of this is sort of a combination of people from all different parts of state and society in East Germany.
2: And then you triangulate those sources in your analysis.
1: I'd say triangulate, but then also try and look at the different ways in which, essentially uh, the methodology of the project was to look at how people employed different ideas and discourses of human rights within society. So looking at how the state employed it as forms of propaganda, as diplomacy. And then also looking at how groups like the church in particular, uh, the uh, Protestant church, employed the language of human rights to try and maneuver within an atheist state that was hostile towards its existence, but had to tolerate it because the vast majority of uh, East Urbans were actually believing Christians at the beginning of the state's existence. So this went down over time. And then also to look at various ways average citizens would use the idea of human rights in terms of writing in complaint letters. There's a really healthy uh, culture of writing in what they're called Eingaben, but these are petitions you could send into the state. This is actually a legally protected right, though as soon as you stepped out of line and challenged state authority, it could go poorly for you. But uh, there's a culture of writing in complaints to the state, and this is something that comes up also uh, in one part of the book, looking at these mass discussions that happen around certain pieces of legislation and a new constitution where people can write in suggestions, usually without much response by the government. But the way in which average people tried to employ this language and then looking at organized human rights activism that comes about in the 1980s.
2: Yeah, I find the Eingaben really interesting. I have looked at these uh, petitions in the context of socialist Romania as well, and certainly not as many there, but um, you see a similar um, effort to employ the language of the state, right, to argue for particular rights or even to kind of challenge the lack of rights and um, to challenge, you know, the existing framework, but just in this kind of coded, very careful language so as not to overstep those boundaries. Okay, let's move on to chapter one. And in chapter one, you talk about uh, the Socialist Unity Party's uh, adoption of human rights discourse, and then how it subsequently adapted it. So it initially adopts it, and then it kind of transforms it to suit uh, the needs of East Germany's illiberal political system. So could you talk a bit about the transformation of human rights discourse between the immediate post-war period and then um, the early period of the GDR, right after its establishment in 1949, and through the early 50s?
1: Yes, really. With the SED, it's a problem that it's an orga- It's a political party that's created in 1946, and it's a merger of the Communist Party and the Social Democrats, but only in the Soviet zone of occupation in Eastern Germany. And the logic behind it was that. The division of the left in the interwar period had allowed for the rise of Nazism. And so this is something that needed to be corrected after the war. And the SED initially presents itself as this broad left-wing uh, workers-oriented organization that can work with the other bourgeois national parties that um, had been anti-fascist during the war. So it could work with the Christian Democrats, it could work with the liberals, so long as they were anti-Nazi. And initially, the party sees itself as being able to take power uh, through democratic means. They assume that they will be able to gain the popularity of the Social Democrats along with their base of communists, and that they should be able to carry the day through a plurality of voting. And the problem is that the SED gets tainted early on as being connected to the Soviet Union. It's seen as just um, a extension of Soviet power. And the Soviet occupation is not popular in Eastern Germany at the depredations of the Red Army on the civilian population. And that you do have a latent group of people who had been until very recently supporting the Nazis. So uh, as it turns out, it's a much harder struggle for the SCD at first, but they are going to try and use elections to validate their claim to run the country. Uh, This becomes a problem. There's elections in 1946 in which they have to compete with the Social Democrats in Berlin, who are still able to operate independently in the western zones of the city. And the SED is anticipating they'll do well, and instead they just get blown out of the water in these votes. That the Social Democrats actually get close to an absolute majority, then the Christian Democrats come in second, the SED barely clears 20%. And the Social Democrats run on the slogan of no socialism without human rights. And they really run their campaign against the SED on the idea that this will bring in a communist dictatorship that will be no better than the Nazi dictatorship. And this causes a real sort of crisis within the SED of how to move forward. And what uh, Walter Ulbricht, who's sort of a de facto leader the SED, decides on, they need to essentially rebrand as a party. They need to absorb this language of human rights and absorb, uh, sort of take on the slogans of the Social Democrats to diffuse them, but also turn in a less democratic way, move away from competitive elections, anything involving sort of free parliamentary voting, and institute some kind of system in which they can be fully in control. So, rhetorically, um, one of the sort of key legal thinkers for the SED, Karl Polak, he comes up with this counter slogan. There can be no human rights without socialism. So only the revolution can realize human rights. Only socialism can prevent resurgence of fascism, which is the negation of human rights. And this is sort of put into practice. There's a East Germany creates a or the SED creates an East German constitution. It becomes the basic law of the country in 1949 when it's founded. But there is no legal system which is there to implement these rights. Most of it is really a dead letter outside of. The state using this as a way to legitimize its policies. Um, but it really sort of isn't something that's tangible in the day-to-day. It's not something that comes up outside of high-level state propaganda. And it sort of falls off the radar for a little while.
2: So during these early years, it's something that's abstract. It's something that's in legislation, but that would not have been accessible to the general public.
1: Yes. It's really something that comes up in sort of the occasional speeches. It's a form of rhetoric. It's a slogan. Um, it gets put into practice in things like commemorative stamps that come up to celebrate an anniversary of the Universal Declaration, which had been created at the UN in 1948. But also, East Germany isn't part of the United Nations. Both Germanys are excluded from it uh, until the 1970s. And there are very few opportunities for it to really come up. And in general, in everyday life, this isn't a language that had already been terribly active in Germany. The Social Democrats had sort of talked about human rights in the 20s, but it was really. Um, connected to people who are interested in the peace movement and anti-militarism. It wasn't sort of an active, thriving language of dissent and democracy in the German context, especially on the left, where human rights since Marx had been a language that had been seen as something tied to romantic bourgeois liberalism for people who wanted to uh, sort of recreate the French Revolution naively without trying to push forward to some kind of Leninist system.
2: So given that socialist uh, human rights is not kind of front and center and, and widely disseminated during this period, would that help to explain why, because um, you discuss the 1953 uprising and you talk about how protesters didn't actually mobilize the language of human rights discourse, that there was one instance in which they did, but that this is not something that they base their uh, claims uh, on. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that uprising and, and why human rights Uh, didn't factor into a critique of the state.
1: Certainly. Uh, 1953 is interesting because in retrospect, it becomes a proto-1989. It becomes a sort of period in which the people rose up demanding democracy, and it's been written as a form of human rights uh, activism. It's been described as an attempted revolution for human rights. And if you understand the catalog of human rights that's widely accepted today... You can view it from that perspective, but I found it interesting that it's not something that's referenced uh, by any of the major demonstrations in these protests. There's no uh, signs, except as you mentioned, there's a single sign I was able to find reference to in the city of Magdeburg. But in Berlin, which is sort of the epicenter at the beginning, uh, initially it's a fight about wages and austerity in the construction sector. It expands out to people demanding democracy, an end to SED rule. And people are perfectly capable of challenging the SED without talking about human rights. I think we sort of, uh, given the ubiquity of human rights nowadays, it's easy to forget that there was a time when it just wasn't a popular language for expressing this. And I think it goes to show the amount to which human rights demands don't just sort of appear spontaneously, that people don't connect to the sort of, they see democracy as something you can just demand without having to legitimize it by making a claim to some. International treaty or some abstract idea about rights, natural rights of some kind. Uh, and in this case, you don't have anyone who's really trying to organize people around this. They're not trying to popularize this. They're not trying to translate international discussions about human rights at the UN into something that's relevant in East German everyday life. And so you have these people who are talking about a democratizing revolution of some kind, and human rights just isn't on the agenda for anyone.
2: Yeah, and you made the important uh, comment about how because it wasn't a part of discourse, right, people weren't thinking about it through that framework. But for us, it's just, it's obviously about human rights. It's about people being able to earn a living wage and work shorter shifts, right, not not yes. to be exploited, essentially. Um, and so for us, it's, you know, a no-brainer that it would be framed through the lens of human rights. What comes first, the discourse or the experience?
1: And I think it's one of the problems with human rights history that it's very easy to read it backwards, that you can find a lot of claims that different movements have that resemble modern human rights law or modern human rights movements. And you can find a way to connect them together because the content of what they're asking for is so similar. But at the same time, we also have to recover the way people thought about these problems and frame them at the time and not try to impose a later framework, or later set of discourses, a later way of relating to democracy, relating to what society uh, sort of owes to its citizens. And I think that we end up doing a real disservice by trying to funnel everyone into this sort of homogenizing framework when the actual lived reality on the ground was actually much richer in a lot of cases, not just in East Germany, but for a lot of different movements that are sometimes sort of sucked into this whirlwind of trying to make everything into this great uh, sort of global struggle towards natural justice, which is inevitably moving forward towards progress.
2: Well, and not to mention, I mean, part of what you're arguing in the book is that human rights is so contextually rooted that it, it varies with respect to the regime type, uh, obviously, the political system. And actually, on that topic, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the formulation of socialist human rights. So you mentioned earlier the Committee for the Protection of Human Rights, and then in Chapter 2, you talk about the legal scholar uh, Hermann Plener. So could you talk about this organization and about this scholar and how then this uh, laid the foundation for the formulation of uh, socialist human rights?
1: Yeah, the Committee for the Protection of Human Rights is interesting to me because I think one of the problems in terms of doing an intellectual history of human rights sometimes is that we have a tendency to sort of want to look at the most interesting, eloquent, coherent thinkers on the subject. And that when it comes to human rights and a lot of other political movements, there's a lot of incoherence. There's a lot of not very um, structured thinking that comes out of political movements, and I think that gets glossed over. And when you look at the Committee for the Protection of Human Rights, it's an activist group that gets formed. And in 1959, it's very it resembles greatly something like Amnesty International. They want to have cultural uh, notables who will come together. They write letters about people who are anti-fascists who've been oppressed in the West and communists who are part of um, the who have been sort of uh, legally persecuted as part of the ban on the communist party that gets implemented in West Germany but it's an organization that gets founded actually two years before Amnesty International which was founded in 1961. What's interesting about the Committee for the Protection of Human Rights is that they don't really seem to know what human rights are even in their own imagination. They don't have any kind of a statement in which they lay out what real human rights are what is it we believe in what they do know is that they are against the persecution of communists and peace activists people who are against militarization they know they're very upset when members of the free german youth or other east german organizations get arrested in west germany and that they are campaigning against this in the name of solidarity and so they they're very good at explaining what they uh, where they see victims of human rights violations, which is persecuted anti-fascists. But then beyond that, they don't really have sort of what human rights look like under socialism. Even what are specific human rights never really comes up. They don't try citing the Universal Declaration. They don't really cite human, sort of specific human rights in a legal case whatsoever. They have an interesting thing where they have these sort of formulas they give to um, the people they sponsor when they eventually get freed and ask them which of their human rights were violated. And essentially, everyone just leaves it blank or just lists what they were arrested for. So you have this organization that's campaigning for human rights, and they it's a completely nebulous, fuzzy concept. They just know that fascism negates human rights, anti-fascism fights fascism, so anti-fascism must be a form of human rights activism. So
2: essentially being defined by what it opposes.
1: Yeah. And this is one of the big problems that the government has. At one point, the Foreign Office makes a comment that we keep on creating these pamphlets talking about how West Germany is an enemy of human rights. And then people say, but what about your country? Aren't you also a one party state that doesn't allow for free expression, doesn't have free elections? And we need an answer here. We don't actually have a positive conception of human rights under socialism, but we've just, we did a really big critique of how human rights aren't good in the West. And then that's all we've got. We hit a wall. And you have this, as you mentioned, Hermann Klenner comes along and he tries to sort of create the systematic vision of what does it mean to have human rights in a socialist society? So Hermann Klenner is interesting. He had actually been, uh, he had joined the uh, National Socialist Party in 1945 as a young man at the end of the war. The circumstances around which are not entirely clear from the files. Uh, Then he becomes a committed socialist after World War II. He goes into studying the law. He becomes a teacher. And then he actually gets purged from the legal community briefly in 1958. There's a big effort to get rid of uh, people who are seen as deviating from the party line, which is that the law does not have any capacity to bind the party. There cannot be any kind of sort of legal structures that exist outside of state power. And Kleiner isn't sort of a crypto liberal who's trying to create some sort of uh, system that will. Restrain the state, but he has a few too many ideas that sort of step just out of line or open up the possibility for these things. And he actually gets sent off to be a mayor of a small town for a few years, which was their re education system for legal professionals. But he comes back and he comes up with a short book on human rights. And again, sort of trying to, he spends a lot of time discussing what they're not. And the main thing they're not is they are not the human rights of the West and of liberal democracies. They're not claims you can make against the state, but they're a completely qualitatively new kind of human rights that exist because of the end of class conflict and the realization of a socialist society. So, the way he describes it, these are sort of the human rights of a new era of history. They're uh, non comparable with earlier types of rights, but they are definitely superior. They're no longer abstract, they're realized in everyday social relations. So, for example, he talks about the right to work. It's now you have a right to work without being exploited and without having the fruits of your labor taken by capitalists, but it's not a guarantee to employment in the same way. And it's definitely not a right to strike because now that you are not being exploited, why would you strike against the state, which actually represents yourself? In comments, your comments, you don't see the industrialists of the West going on strike because that's irrational, just like it would be irrational for a worker under socialism to do this. And they really address the right to strike a lot because this is something that the a lot of the old communist cadres and radical worker movements they get very upset about in East Germany. There's a lot of dissent from below from people who get angry at the idea that they no longer can take action uh, in the workplace. But then we look at classical political rights, things like the right to speak. This idea that you have a right to speak in contribution to truth to build a better society, not that you can just sort of say whatever you want if that. Thing is false. So you definitely can't speak in favor of counter-revolution because that would harm your self-interest. And similar to political rights, that you get to take part in socialist democracy, which is not this sort of fake bourgeois democracy, and that democracy permeates all parts of life, from the workplace to the home. Everything is now so democratized that these rights mean more than some kind of right to go and vote for whatever party you feel like. And then a whole sort of catalog of rights that really exist to demonstrate social priorities and values, Um, and these benefits are delivered as rights, but you can't claim them from the state. You can't demand them. So things like leisure activities are realizing the rights of people to recreation, but you can't just show up at some state office and demand a holiday cottage because it's your right. And so in the legal system, the only place this really plays out is between private citizens' interests. So for example, in the case of a divorce, custody arrangements could be modified to make sure that, say, the mother's right to education didn't get interfered with. But that's really the only place where rights turn up as illegal fact and reality, and something that a citizen could sort of invoke with any chance of success.
2: Right. And of course, one of the characteristics of socialist policy is the coexistence of progressive and regressive policies. So in the GDR, you have the continued criminalization of abortion.
1: Yeah, this is a huge about face for the SED. That in the Weimar period, for the Communist Party, they ran the slogan of "Your body belongs to you," and the idea that women should have full access to abortion. And then, as soon as uh, they start taking power, this turns into a problem that people had a right to an uh, access abortion under capitalism because they were being exploited. But um, now that, well, now that we have a huge uh, manpower shortage due to the Uh, deaths from World War II, and people are emigrating out of the country. We need to prioritize reproduction and production simultaneously. And so women will be given all the social and economic rights benefits that they need in order to do this. But again, it's this very sort of coercive way of providing benefits towards a very specific state demanded aim. So you have the benefits of childcare, you have Um, a special sort of, there's a law that's brought in 1950 about the rights of women and children. It's entirely about the benefits that will be provided to ensure women are going to be working while also having children. And you really don't have a shift in terms of uh, allowing women to freely choose an abortion outside of medical emergencies until the late 1960s.
2: Yeah. And of course, the GDR is the last state in the bloc to decriminalize abortion, even though the Soviet Union faces a greater demographic challenge in the immediate post-war period. They already decriminalized abortion in the mid-50s. Okay. I'd like to move on to chapter three now and to talk about how human rights discourse in the GDR was influenced by what was happening globally, in particular in the global South, so decolonization. And so how do you see Human rights discourse in the GDR being transformed as a result of decolonization, and then how human rights uh, discourse is used as a kind of a source of diplomacy by the GDR.
1: This is one of the areas where I think Hermann Kleiner's work and his sort of shift in the 60s is really important, that in the beginning of the 1950s, the committee's activism is very much about human rights in West Germany. It's very much extension of this earlier conflict from the 1940s with the Social Democrats of fighting for legitimacy against Western competitors. And as a result of decolonization, this human rights politics takes this jump to a global level and becomes a problem of positioning East Germany within the new global order and trying to use human rights as a way to legitimize it to the global South rather than to people in Western Germany. Uh, And so Helmut Kline is interesting in this regard that he takes the language of the UN Declaration of Colonialism from 1960. This comes out of the Year of Africa, the huge influx of African countries joining the United Nations and tilting the balance of power away from the West. And he really inserts the concept of self-determination into his idea of socialist human rights. And this comes up because in the Universal Declaration in 1948, Western powers had specifically excluded a right to national self-determination, But the rise of decolonized countries had reintroduced self-determination into human rights debates in a big way. And in the process of turning the Universal Declaration into a set of legally binding covenants that happens in 1966, one on political and civil rights, one on economic, social, and um, cultural rights, self-determination goes from being completely excluded in the Universal Declaration to becoming the first right in both of these covenants. Uh, And this is essentially driven from the global South and by the Afro-Asian bloc that comes out of the UN. and Kleiner picks up on this and he enters this idea that essentially socialism is the vehicle for true self-determination on an individual level, on a social level, on a national level. And here he picks up on Lenin's use of the right to self-determination, one of the few rights Lenin talked about, in many cases. Um, And so in this way, he says, socialism is a vehicle for self-determination. And as the global South country says, the Bandung movement has said, self-determination is a form of human rights. So he tries to sort of mix these all together. Socialism is self-determination, is human rights. And so really, if you look at East Germany and the Eastern Bloc, they are the vanguard of the human rights movement by creating a place for socialism as a path forward for these countries that are realizing self-determination from Western influence for the first time. And as I mentioned before, since East Germany isn't part of the UN, it's essentially under a diplomatic blockade by West Germany, which threatens to cut off ties and trade and aid to any country that recognizes the GDR. Um, East Germany tries to use this push about human rights as a way to court countries in the global South to assert that It's on their side as part of this larger global division between Western imperialist racism and Eastern socialist solidarity with the South. And that East Germany sort of provides a model for realizing human rights for these countries as they emerge through independence. And this is really tied up with 1968 in the International Year of Human Rights. It's created by the UN. And so they try to use this as a vehicle for their own geopolitical ambitions to try and take an end run around the. UN Security Council and get the Global South to the General Assembly to try and recognize East Germany as its own country. And this ends up completely failing. It does no impact whatsoever. But what's interesting about this is that the SED comes out and formally says they'll sign all human rights treaties. They fully commit to the material that's in all of them. And as a result, internally, you also see bureaucratically that um, there's sort of an internalization amongst the state bureaucracy that, of course, East Germany is actually a champion of this. It's not just sort of a cynical slogan we, uh, we're using. But if we had to implement, uh, implement all of these treaties legally, this really wouldn't be that difficult because we're already there.
2: How prevalent or how accessible would this have been to ordinary East Germans? So... Obviously, this would have been discussed in the newspaper, but are are children learning about this in schools, human rights discourse, and the influence of the GDR's human rights uh, discourse on on the Global South, on decolonizing countries?
1: This is something that's really in mainstream East German state media. This is all over the place. That If you look, particularly beginning in 1968, but even before that, with this Committee for the Protection of Human Rights, it transitions in the 60s from regular coverage of human rights abuses in West Germany and it expands outwards and the media starts covering their activism looking at things like oppression in South Africa it talks about the human rights abuses by the regime of the colonels in Greece it looks at the civil rights movement in the United States and these are framed as human rights abuses and in 1968 with the constitution um that Walter Ulbricht when he's addressing the nation talks about how this is that they're going to be redoing the constitution of the country. This will be part of the, the GDR's contribution to this global international human rights here. It will demonstrate the superiority of human rights in understate socialism. And there's a wealth of sort of the textbooks produced at the UN include the Universal Declaration, pamphlets produced by this Committee for Human Rights, Actually, put the GDR legal code side by side with the human rights covenants to show how every single measure is met. Usually, they had a whole lot of extra text to make it look like East Germany's extra, um, sort of, has even more commitment to human rights than even the United Nations. And then, as we sort of move along, there's even things like children's textbooks will have um, exercises discussing sort of the human rights champion Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States. So, this is a language that comes up, but it's always framed around a very specific vision of human rights as something that is um, emanates from socialism and something that's abused under capitalism and through colonialism.
2: Yeah, I was struck by the example in the school text where they're teaching punctuation, but it's their way in which to critique at the same time Jim Crow laws in the South. Don't,
1: don't let a chance to sort of take a dig at the American South go waste.
2: Okay, so I'd like to move on to talk about uh, the signing of the Basic Treaty in 1972 and then East Germany's entry uh, into the UN and how this affects human rights discourse.
1: As I mentioned before, there's one thing, in a lot of the literature, the idea that human rights only really, that there's a huge concession that is being made by East Germany and the rest of the Eastern Bloc by agreeing to human rights at the Helsinki Accords negotiations. Um, And the thing that's interesting is that East Germany is actually one of the last of the Eastern Bloc to sign and ratify these treaties, these human rights covenants that are produced by the UN, that the Eastern Bloc had already agreed to these in large part. The fact that they were not implementing them according to liberal democratic norms is another matter. But the idea of normatively agreeing to the concept of human rights had already been established. And the basic treaty between East and West Germany in 1972 It includes terms talking about how both will recognize human rights. The entry of East Germany into the UN in 1973 comes with them formally signing and ratifying the covenants and other human rights treaties. And they continue to lobby on issues like apartheid and things like this. And so um, in this period in the early 70s, for the SED, they really see human rights as something that's connected to self-determination. It's connected to anti-imperialism through the UN, and they see it as something that is about recognizing state borders, state sovereignty. It's not a concession to the idea that Western NGOs get to show up in East Berlin and start critiquing the government in any way. And the signing of the Helsinki Accords, again, That if you look at the statement of principles in the Helsinki Accords, in this agreement from 1975, the commitment to human rights is sandwiched between a the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of nations and the principle of self-determination. And so for the East Germans, when they're negotiating this treaty, they really see the human rights sections as just reiterating this human rights politics, which is coming from the global South and is something that they're on really firm footing for. So they don't expect the Helsinki Accords to really have a major impact. Um, and in the end, the actual impact in East Germany isn't as big as it's often cited. You get books talking about sort of hundreds of thousands of people immediately upon hearing the news of this agreement, sending in applications to leave the country. These numbers don't really hit until you get to the mid-1980s. And this is sort of premature. And, but what we do see is with the signing of all of these treaties, you do have this sort of steady uptick in people who are trying to reference legal um, agreements in order to make a claim to a right to emigrate. But this also gets tamped down each time. You have a huge amount of state coercion being put into this, that people who try to invoke the Helsinki Accords to demand a right to leave or anything else, that they these requests get sent to the minister, to sort of security services. These people often lose their, their work. They're investigated. They can go to jail. Um, and whatever kind of nascent human rights movement that might have been there in sort of, in terms of a handful of individuals, are investigated by the Ministry of State Security, the notorious Stasi. But in comparison to other Eastern Bloc countries, where you have things like um, Helsinki monitoring groups in different parts of the Soviet Union, you have the Charter 77 movement out of Czechoslovakia, you have groups like KOR in Poland, that this doesn't happen in East Germany. You actually have a much more muted response to the Helsinki Accords compared to most of the rest of the Eastern Bloc, where human rights is much more quickly a rallying cry for uh, democratic change.
2: And would you argue that was the case in part because the living standards were higher in the GDR, but also you don't have that same type of crackdown, uh, obviously, as you do in Czechoslovakia in 1968?
1: I think there's a number of factors that go into it, that on the one hand, living standards are higher than the rest of the Eastern Bloc, but at the same time, people in East Germany were always judging their living standards, not against Poland or Albania, but against West Germany. So the East German government was always under the gun in terms of having to provide consumer goods to an extent that they were not trying to sort of appear to be the best of the socialist bloc, but to be at least somewhat comparable to, some, to a Western standard of living. But in the case of the GDR, you also have this, there's this natural um, self-sorting mechanism of people who want to change the country, it's a lot easier just to try and leave it. You don't need to try and organize for a better GDR if you're perfectly happy just to move to a different Germany. Um, This is something you don't have the same option for in, say, Poland or Czechoslovakia. Uh, And on the other hand, though, you really see the sort of intellectual cultural elite at the time are nervous about engaging in human rights critiques of the state because it'll seem as though they're rejecting socialism, that there's this real problem that human rights politics appear to be an all or nothing situation. You're either fully embracing what the SED is saying, you're embracing this worldview of socialism as the sort of glorious paradise of human rights and in allyship with the global South. Or you're embracing a liberal democratic vision in which the East is a totalitarian hellscape. So human rights becomes this very polarizing topic where it's hard for people who want to try and demand change on the ground that isn't absolute and total, it's hard for them to try and figure out a foothold for that.
2: Well, and right, and in the GDR, you still have these reformist socialists, whereas in other countries they had abandoned socialist reformism, right? But there was still this hope. Among intellectuals and cultural elites in the
1: GDR. Yeah, so you see the famous dissident Robert Havemann, that when he talks about human rights, the idea that obviously the East should do more to democratize, but the West also has to do a lot to try and actually realize some form of um, socialist understanding of economic and social rights. And he never wants to try and come out and say, sort of, obviously the East is worst on this. He always wants to frame this around the need for some kind of convergence. Uh, And then people like Rudolf Barrow, he's a SED bureaucrat who becomes sort of an eco-utopian socialist. And he just openly derides the Western human rights movement. He sees them as sort of backwards, um, sort of this backwards, almost reactionary movement pushing for liberal parliamentarianism. And in his mind that this is a completely banal movement and that really people need to be thinking towards the future not moving backwards towards liberal democracy. So you have these people who are sort of looking towards this, how do we perfect a brighter future of of real socialism that's emancipatory? And Western human rights discourse sounds like this sort of cold warrior um, rhetoric that's against socialism in all forms. And so they really are sort of stuck between two stools there. They don't really feel comfortable talking about the state's use of human rights because it seems so propagandistic. But the Western version also doesn't really give them much to hold on to in terms of creating a better kind of socialism.
2: Right. And then alongside that, you have the government, uh, the, the East German government that's actually inviting Critique, so through the Eingaben, and then in particular through the 68 Constitution, where you talk about they had solicited popular input. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, maybe even provide an excerpt or two from these letters that individuals wrote to the state with respect to uh, the revision of the Constitution.
1: Oh, I'm glad you asked about that because it, it's so hard at times to get the voices of average people into this. And the Volksarztblock, this process of mass consultation on the Constitution, there is a collection of about twelve thousand letters of people writing in to the Constitutional Commission. A number of these are letters that are produced at workplaces. It's completely propagandistic of just sort of saying we affirm our loyalty and we think this is great. But you have this wealth of feedback, which ranges from people openly attacking the government to some people just complaining about grammar. You have sort of very pedantic letters of people getting upset about certain typos. Yeah. You, there's a handful once I found of people complaining. Why are we the German, the German Democratic Republic? We should be the Democratic Republic of Germany. And there's this, sort of, this is odd, this is sort of all these odd eccentrics that pop up, which I don't have the space to talk about in the book. But this is really sort of the opening of people trying to use human rights at this time as a way to try and get the state to move on a few policy positions. Um, in particular, you get the Christian community mobilizing at this time. The 1949 Constitution, the first constitution the GDR had created, had eight articles about religious freedom and freedom of thought. And in this constitution, this gets restricted down to a single article, part of a larger campaign to try and suppress the influence of the church and its role in public life. And so there's a mass mobilization by Catholic and by Protestant bishops, and they take the leverage of East Germany trying to advertise itself as a champion of human rights, as a country trying to enter into the UN. And they say that there needs to be more recognition of religious freedom in order for G- the GDR to live up to this promise of human rights. So there's this sort of unique confluence of events that gives people leverage that East Germany is trying to make this international claim. They are trying to get mass turnout from the people to show up to this um to have a plebiscite, actually to affirm the constitution. And East Germany, in general, the elections are held, and there's a really big drive to get mass turnout to try and get universal approval in these elections where you just go and sign off on a list of candidates. You can't change. But as evidence of the legitimacy of the state. And so you do actually have a bit of leverage at this time. And people start writing into the commission and sort of making it sound as though... There's sort of this very passive-aggressive tone to some of these letters, talking about how it would be very unfortunate if, say, the rest of the world thought we were an open-air prison because you couldn't leave the country, because that would really harm our reputation. And some of these other lines that people were sort of... that it's always framed around this problem of it would be terrible if the good work the country did was somehow overshadowed by misunderstandings about the nature of East German society. And so one person makes a comment about how Um, At public meetings, you had people who were sort of discussing the Constitution, and you had someone who was sort of saying, asking whether or not it would create problems for East Germany if it eventually joined the UN, and didn't actually include all of the rights of the Universal Declaration, specifically to leave the country. Um, And other people saying, it's like, the GDR aspires towards membership of the United Nations, and we support this effort wholeheartedly. Uh, through this, a republic would be able to have the opportunity on a global platform in the forum of all peoples to show the idea of humanism is universally possible. This does mean, however, that we need to make the positive aspects and conditions of UN membership our own. And then goes through a list of all of the changes that would have to be made to the constitution to conform to human rights terms. So you have this sort of very flowery language about the nature of how um The people who are writing in are fully in favor of this great project of joining the United Nations, that East Germany would then be able to realize its goals uh, throughout the world. Just there's one little hitch, and you may not have even noticed it. We're just trying to politely point it out to you. And it would just be very embarrassing for everyone involved if you didn't get around to this. Um, And this isn't universal. You've got about 5,000 people who write in specifically about religious rights, and some people write in much more militantly. Um, saying that sort of the right to religious rights is something that's not based on law. It's based on natural freedoms. Um, you get a handful of people who write in anonymously attacking the government, and you have a few really daring people who write in to say, who start sort of questioning why the constitution now includes an article guaranteeing that the SED will always lead the state and saying, isn't it possible that we might start doing things like they're doing in Czechoslovakia with the Frog Spring? And at some point, one some of these other small parties, like the Christian Democrats, might win an election. Who knows? But this overall tone of sort of trying to apply pressure as a friendly, loyal voice of Christians who simply don't want to be excluded from the socialist community is really the overall tone. And in the end, the states, are, they end up agreeing to add a second article to the Constitution. It doesn't mean anything in day-to-day life, but this symbolic gesture to the Christian community is the the one big concession that is made as a result of this feedback.
2: Yeah, and I found that impressive that it did actually result in change and that maybe it didn't mean anything at the time, but then, of course, later it can be used. And actually, I'd like to transition to the 80s now, where you talk about the, the emergence of dissident movements and, in particular, the use of human rights as a basis for challenging the state. So could you talk about some of these movements and then also... Um, note their inspiration and their sources of influence.
1: So in the 1980s is an interesting shift where you have a number of nascent groups that had organized in the late 1970s and early 1980s around what they thought were apolitical moral topics. So you have this independent peace movement. They were particularly upset by nuclear deployment and mandatory uh, military training in schools that was introduced. And then you also have an environmental movement, which is concerned about such a sort of unrestricted industrial pollution, which is really a blight in East Germany. Um, there's a massive chemical industry, heavy industrial production. And a lot of communities are just hit with huge amounts of water-based pollution. You have forest die-offs, open pit coal mining. Um, and so oh, groups are trying to organize independently of the state to talk about what they see as something that's not about challenging state politics, it's not about saying the SED doesn't have a right to run the country, but demanding certain changes on the ground. And this is met with overwhelming state response by the security services. There is no legitimacy given to these groups. Um, and you have a crackdown by the Stasi, organizers of groups like Women for Peace, a um, number of different or church-based environmental groups, that people are targeted by the security services when they try to have any kind of demonstration. They're met with violence. And after a couple of years of this kind of persecution, there is a shift amongst these groups in terms of how they understand the political problem in East Germany. That this hope that you could try to change the system outside of its political structures is abandoned by a very small group initially. And they turn to the idea that First, we have to realize human rights, which they understand as essentially sort of the existence of pluralism within the system. And once we achieve basic human rights, which allow for a kind of pluralistic exchange of ideas and political free speech within this sort of realm, at that point, we can go back to these apolitical demands. So they're not trying to create a political revolution so much as create a the terms where they can go and just go back to these local issues that they've been upset about from some time. And by nineteen eighty, at the very end of nineteen eighty-five, beginning of eighty-six, you have a group called the Initiative for Peace and Human Rights, and it's a group of people from di- a diverse group of different dissident movements, and they're people who came out of these sort of failed independent peace and environmental groups and other sort of intellect people who have been intellectually upset with the nature of how socialism functions. And their proposal is that you need to have basic human rights reforms to create this kind of democracy. And that this is something that needs to be done outside of activism from within the church, which had been able to sort of provide a certain umbrella of protection. And they try to essentially bring together all of these disaffected groups. So you have people who are um, resistors against the draft. You have these sort of different um disaffected Christian groups who see themselves as being oppressed in terms of freedom of thought and as I mentioned the environmental and peace movements. So they really try to build a group that's sort of a conglomeration of all of these different grassroots movements and put it all under the umbrella of human rights. That this is a term that we can all get together behind because it is this big abstract notion and it can be tied to The state's own claims that East Germany is a place that is home to human rights. And so the activism they start at the beginning is making demands on the state that they live up to their own rhetoric, not to become a liberal democracy, but this idea that there is democracy in all parts of socialist society. So we should be able to take part in this conversation, that the right to peace is something that the state claims to embody. And we are trying to say that you're not doing it properly. And And so
2: basically to hold the state accountable.
1: Yeah. But what's interesting is that they really try to hold the state accountable on their own terms. They don't come out and say, we don't have free elections, therefore you're hypocrites. They come out and say, well, if the West doesn't have a right to intervene in our own internal affairs, then don't we have a right to intervene in our own internal affairs? Because we live here. And this is interesting sort of amalgam of human rights ideas they pull together. On some hand, it's sort of a, there's certain elements of liberal democracy but they're also drawing off of state rhetoric on a number of topics and members of the group are also inter sort of form networks with other eastern european dissident groups so there's ties up to charter 77 there's ties with kor and this movement in poland which is really a sort of alliance of workers and intellectuals and the idea behind the group is to try and link together sort of grassroots people people who sort of workers who in their everyday life are upset about certain things and would like to change aspects of society and then also educated middle uh, people sort of in the intelligentsia not just making it into an elite movement who's trying to intellectually intervene into the state of socialism but into something that's really about mobilization.
2: Yeah, so a mass movement which is of course what we see in 1989 or the late 80s and then of course culminating in 1989. And so um, I was wondering if we could actually transition to that. So talking about 1989 and the massive protests and how human rights were so fundamental to that type of civic engagement and dissent that was going on at that time.
1: I'd like to think of 1989 in this case, that in terms of the mass protests, one of the reasons why human rights becomes a really effective rallying cry isn't because there's a really cohesive idea behind it or because there's a specific list of rights that people are fighting for. But because it's such a broad, uh, sort of, um, mentioned before the sort of broad, fuzzy conception of what human rights are, becomes a real asset to this movement. That human rights become something that can mean many things to many different parts of society. So initially, their efforts of bringing together these disaffected grassroots movements, that this really starts to proliferate, and they start bringing in other parts of society that generally think that the decline of the economy, the clear breakdown of political trust, even amongst those who tend to be loyal within the system. You start having things like um, the state is banning Soviet publications after glasnost and perestroika are implemented because they're seen as dangerous. And so even the Soviet Union becomes sort of on the enemy's list uh, as a threat to socialism. And so human rights holds out this um, possibility for a really broad heterogeneous Coalition of forces. On the one hand, you can bring in the disaffected groups who are already politically active. You can get people interested who don't necessarily want to be fully political, but care about sort of general ideas about how society should function, this idea that human rights is something that's beyond politics. Um, And then you can also bring in people from within the system who see this as a value that the state has not fully realized. So those who are the most politically integrated into the system, these sort of mid-tier SED members, members of bureaucracy, teachers, um, that they can recognize, even if they do hold out some hope for a better socialism, they can look at these demands for human rights as something that could improve the system or could salvage the good parts of socialism. It's an easy way to buy into it because you're not telling people you need to fully abandon what you've worked towards your entire life. The initial pitch with the human rights movement wasn't, we're going to now abolish socialism, abolish the country, so much as we are here, we want to be involved, we want to realize a true democracy here, and we would like to realize the human rights that have always been promised to us.
2: Of course, at that time, there was still no notion that everything was going to collapse. I mean, this was all contingent at the time, and even at the mid-80s, you know, it's still this notion, okay, this is this system could survive for a while, so let's make it better, let's improve
1: it. Yeah, and especially even in 1989, you still have this, you do have people who are enthusiastically idealistic about the idea that the system can still improve. It's not a large population, but um, you have people in key positions of power too who don't necessarily want to completely uh, give up on the power structure that they exist in. Um, And this doesn't seem like it's something that is going to immediately have this level of radical change look at even in January 1989, there's a few dozen human rights organizations, but they're still scattered around the country. It's fairly marginal. And you just have this exponential growth over the course of the year, which is also tied into this uh, ongoing crisis of people trying to emigrate. It's tied into the general economic decline of the country and this larger problem that some parts of the communist world are embracing reformism. We look at places like Hungary and Poland introducing elections. Um, And then you also have a 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. And so this sort of question of which direction states are going to go. Are they going to go for some kind of negotiated transition or are they going to be willing to use mass violence as a way to stop any kind of demands for change? I think the human rights demands are part of that in some way, that when we look at the evidence in East Germany that the military and the police have problems that people that essentially soldiers and police aren't mustering. You've got these militia units that were created after the 1953 uprising, and people just aren't showing up for work to join them as these mass movements are just taking over the street. And on the other hand, you have low-level SED officials who are hearing these demands for human rights and start deciding to start engaging with dialogue, the idea that they have lost the people and need to reclaim them. And um, so there's an interesting uh, the, um, an interesting aspect about 89 when there's the, anth- the socialist anthem, the international, which actually includes the idea that they're going to fight for human rights in the German version, that people start singing the socialist anthem talking about human rights. And this is held up as a sort of weird moment in which the people in the streets demonstrating against the socialist unity party are singing a socialist anthem. And this has an effect of neutralizing, to some extent, the portrayal of these groups as a mass counter-revolutionary movement. It doesn't play into the script that the security services had for how to put down a revolution, that these are supposed to be reactionary, Western-sponsored Nazis who are trying to end the socialist project. You have these sort of -of middle-of-the-road school teachers marching with the community, singing the Internationale.
2: It's kind of like, you know, the workers forming the Solidarity Movement in Poland. Your labor union doesn't work for us, so we're going to create our own. Okay, let's move on to the final chapter. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what was won, but also what was lost for East Germans, or I guess you know, by by the nineteen ninety, they'd be former East Germans, um, with respect to human rights. So once you have unification, what's lost, but what's gained?
1: I, mean, I think the main uh, point of contention in this sort of debate is. The problem of whether or not the revolution of 1989 was about providing popular sovereignty for people in East Germany or about the restoration of Germany as a country. And this immediately becomes the focal point of conflict after the fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9th, that you have a lot of divisions within these mass movements that had previously been obscured. And suddenly the question of reunification comes about and this fractures apart this very broad coalition. And so there is an element of these movements, particularly sort of the most active, distant members from Initiative for Peace and Human Rights. You've got these reform communists. You've got these sort of idealistic socialists who still think this is a chance that can be taken. Um, actually, the Committee for Protection of Human Rights, in their news, in their sort of bulletin, um, there's a intellectual, Jurgen Kuczynski, who had actually been an advisor to the SED leader, Herr Honecker, and he was saying, oh, finally, we're having a popular revolution. This is going to be it. And so there's hope from some factions that the fall of the Berlin Wall is going to allow them to finally realize a new kind of democratized socialism. And instead, you end up having this sort of popular way of pushing for reunification, the abolishment of East Germany as a country, the end of socialism, and the integration into the West German liberal parliamentary democracy with market social, uh, social economy. Um, And so in this way, this idea of sort of the lost project of the better socialism is definitely the thing that gets closed out with reunification. Uh, On the other hand, in terms of political rights, there's sort of a split amongst people involved in the movement. You've got some people who see this sort of the return to Uh, sort of a plan for liberal democracy as a failing to achieve a better kind of democracy. But for a lot of people involved in the dissident movement, at least on the political end, that this achievement of pluralism, the achievement of a right to vote and take part fully in these sort of discussions of democracy is a real achievement. But then on the other hand, looking at social and economic rights, while some people gain greatly from the economic boon of reunification in certain areas. You also see the sort of collapse of the East German economy in many places. And with that, the collapse of state structures that existed to provide social support, social and economic rights, you have suddenly a lot of people who would never had to worry about housing, about medical treatment, who are now unemployed and lacking social services. And particularly from women, you have the problem that Um, You lose state daycare facilities. All of the different social and economic rights that have been provided as a means of allowing women into the workforce are suddenly pulled out from people in a lot of communities, which are hit hard by the economic transition. Um,
2: Well, then for women, there's also the loss of reproductive freedom.
1: Exactly. And this is so in in the early 70s, you'd had actually a total liberalization of access to abortion. And then suddenly, and in West Germany, the... Abortion debate had been focused around the idea of a right to life, but the right to life of a fetus. So in East Germany, where this discussion had turned into a question of women's rights, in upon reunification, you have a problem that West German law is going to be uh, sort of superseding East German. And so you suddenly have uh, East German feminist activists who are pointing out that women are suddenly getting the right to vote, but then losing control over bodily autonomy rights they're losing a right to bodily self-determination in the process of suddenly gaining political self-determination. Yeah, so what
2: does freedom mean?
1: And you have this ironic situation where, on the one hand, you have West German conservatives who are framing this as a chance to finally get rid of this East German abortion law, which they see as immoral and tied to communism. But they are framing the abolition of these rights around the triumph of liberal democracy the triumph of the independent individual citizen who finally has power to say no to the state, who has the right, his protections of the Reichsstaat, of the judiciary. And now you are no longer dominated by totalitarian leviathan. And women are pointing out that this is also suddenly meaning that the state has a right to make choices over biological reproduction and their most intimate control over their own body. So you have this social conservative agenda which is being propagated in the name of liberal individual emancipation.
2: and Which is why, of course, you have so much discontent, and um, people call it nostalgia, which I think is actually uh, not the appropriate term to describe these rights that actually people enjoyed, reproductive freedom being one of them.
1: I think it's one of the things that is a contra- difficult to explain in a way that doesn't end up sounding nostalgic for the system, or sound like an apologist, that... You have people who are suddenly subjected to the uncertainties of a market economy and are suddenly forced into a position of competing for jobs and possibly losing the most basic um, aspects of survival for the first time. And I think there's a great deal of trauma around that, that people have gone from a life where housing stock had been sort of crumbling at that point, but this idea that you were at least guaranteed a basic economic subsistence. And then okay. suddenly being thrown into process of reunification with mass layoffs, whole industries that disappeared overnight, which where East Germany essentially had to go through the same deindustrialization process that Western Europe had been through for several decades in the process of a few years. So you at the end of the coal industry, the car you start car manufacturing that nobody needs an East German to rebond anymore. And the factories are from the nineteen fifties and it just gets shuttered. But then other uh, profitable industries get bought up and lose large parts of their workforce or get shut down. Um, And so I think in this way that the transition is associated to these sets of traumas and that people are nostalgic for a period in which they had certain guarantees and they had certain state programs which guaranteed um, these sort of basic elements of their existence.
2: I think trauma is a really good way of framing it. And I found the same thing in Romania and of Even, you know, we think of the the austerity in Romania, how horrible it was in the 80s, but still you have people looking back to the pre-1989 period because at least there was a modicum of certainty that they no longer enjoy. Okay, I'd like to close with one final question, Mm -hmm. and it is this. What do we miss about the story of human rights during the Cold War when we leave out socialist human rights?
1: I think the biggest problem with leaving out the socialist states is that, we end up with this nice sort of pat story of the triumph of liberal democracy as a natural and inevitable conclusion of the cold war and that has a number of different effects i think first off the inevitability takes away from the extent to which the socialist system did have people who believed in it and i mean sort of people at the top you have the people who are actually running it that the degree to which they did not see themselves as sort of mustache twirling villains standing up against basic human rights, that they did actually believe in that what they were doing was part of a larger vision of um, sort of the better future under modernity. On the other hand, I think it also takes away from the work that was actually done by dissidents who, in this traditional um, sort of liberal progress narrative, become just a vessel for Western ideas, Western activism. They become these sort of automatons reacting to stimulus from the outside. And that when we look at this from the perspective of this sort of architecture, both intellectual and organizational, that's created in the Eastern Bloc, and particularly in East Germany, on human rights, that for dissidents to try and create a movement to translate these abstract concepts into a working politics on the ground that we completely miss the incredible difficulty in creating social movements like this. That the organization that needs to be done isn't just a matter of people need to finally break through the sort of tyranny and say the truth and everyone will follow them. That this is about organizing social groups around very specific political goals. It's about bringing together groups at the grassroots and finding a way to create a movement that is working towards goals that make sense in people's everyday lives. And this is also something I think gets left out of the lessons that are taken from the Cold War turn into the need to sort of speak truth to power, the need to stand up to tyranny. But the lesson isn't taken that you need to go and listen to people on the ground, find out what it is that matters to them in their daily lives, and find a way to connect that to this broader global project of human rights. And I think this is something where you end up having a very elitist and out of touch human rights movement in a lot of quarters, one that um, people seem to be mystified why it seemed to be so popular in the late 80s and early 90s, and now seems to have really run out of steam. And I think that people took a lot of the wrong lessons from the Cold War. They took the lesson that you need to write a lot of letters from the outside, you just need to sort of yell loudly enough about hypocrisy and tyranny and abuses and this will just naturally produce change through a spontaneous revolution without actually trying to look at the difficult politics of intellectually bridging gaps between groups uh, through this sort of abstracted language about human rights and finding ways to create political mobilization, which is an incredibly difficult task, especially when you're living in a dictatorship.
2: Yeah, and I think it remains politicized examining the socialist period. And as a scholar of everyday life and socialism, I of course really appreciate your approach. And it's so important to look at how these negotiations, interactions played out on the ground and among individuals at different levels, mm-hmm. and how individuals engage with the states and, and how states even invited individuals to do so, and not to just mm-hmm. kind of write that off as tokenist.
1: So when you look at things like, um, and that's where it's sort of the global Dimensions of this is something we didn't get into as much, but you really did ha- uh, have phenomena where people could support certain aspects of state policy on human rights, like solidarity with Chile after the with the junta. You have solidarity as uh, sort of people suffering from apartheid, these anti-colonial politics where everyday people could feel like they were part of this larger global project of fighting against imperialism and racism and oppression. And this is a very effective means of deflecting from politics at home. And I think this is also something that is important in terms of looking at human rights politics in the contemporary world. That you have, on the one hand, people become engaged by looking at these international issues, but they don't necessarily translate that into wanting change at home. In many cases, it can be a way of people then deciding, well, I'm not currently being thrown out of a helicopter by Pinochet stormtroopers, so obviously my life can't be that bad. And how human rights activism and giving people this global perspective can actually end up defusing any kind of desire for change or radicalism in their own lives, which I think often it's this idea of gaining a global consciousness will make you a better citizen, when it can actually make people more passive about their own circumstances because, well, at least I'm not suffering what these people are suffering. I'm not being tortured in Brazil.
2: Oh, certainly. And its it, I mean, not that the human rights activists are doing that, but certainly the states are deflecting attention away from that. And that was done in the media, obviously, in the socialist regimes. But, you know, we, we see this in liberal democracies as well. OK, well, we are out of time. It's been so great speaking with you. And so I'd like to maybe take the last minute or two uh, to have you discuss your current project. Yes.
1: Yeah, so right now I'm working at the University of Erfurt and got a research project called The Other Global Germany. Transnational Criminality, and Deviant Globalization in the 20th Century. And uh, myself and a small research team, uh, including Zala Flanking and Bodhi Ashton, we are looking at this problem of the rise of different forms of, tra- of illicit transnational activity in Germany's history as a way of trying to get a new perspective on how we look at the global history of Germany. So moving beyond Regular economic interconnections, intercultural exchange, and trying to look at things like drug trafficking, arms dealing, and human smuggling, and how all of this is part of these alternative networks of global interconnection, which sometimes interlap and interconnect with the legal economy and legal forms of movement, but at the same time provides a different way of understanding how uh, Germany's place in the world, both in terms of these illicit networks and then also state activism and diplomacy to work with other countries to create global and international prohibition regimes against certain kinds of cross-border activity.
2: Well, it sounds really interesting and definitely a novel approach to the examination of Germany during the Cold War. So look forward to reading publications that come out of this work. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It was such a pleasure learning more about your research.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. It was a great pleasure.